This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with return guest, uh, possibly soon to be a frequent guest, Brian Chittister. Brian, welcome back to the show, man. Thanks for having me back, Mark. I can't. It's been a year. I can't believe it's been this long. Like you and I were just saying, it's last time I was talking to you, I was in the office, and and now we're sitting here uh, in this new normal. I'm sitting in my office. You're sitting in your office. And our producers sitting at Federal News Network. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Uh, so uh, remind people who you are and what you do. Yeah. So I, I'm Brian Chittister. I'm head of uh, worldwide industry strategy for public sector at OpenText. So. Uh, I I help to do a lot of different things. I like to think of myself as an evangelist, but uh, really uh, work to help our customers understand some of the trends happening within global public sector and and allow them to to help them align to those trends um, through technology, through culture change, transformation, all that type of stuff. So um, working globally has been an excellent way for me to see some of the best in class uh, government experiences that are happening out there right now. And it's it's been a lot of fun to work with some of these customers and help them help them transform. Yeah, and that that leads us into the topic when you, you and I were bouncing ideas to discuss. You threw out this whole WOG concept, uh, the whole of government, and I'm going, what the heck is this? <laughs> and I look into it, and it, it it reminded me there was a program back in the '80s and early '90s run by GSA. You had to have geographic proximity, but it was called the Cooperative Administrative Support Program. And what they did was in places like Javits, uh, Denver Federal Center, and others where there was a, a cluster of physically close federal agencies, they coordinated things as simple as mail handling and distribution, training, and a variety of other administrative functions. So it was very low end. But it was it was a program that I remember because I knew the guys who ran it for GSA, and I wrote about it a couple of times, um, and it just it stuck with me because it was just a, a really good idea, and for whatever reason it ran away. So, what what turns you on to WOG and give give people an overview of really what it is? So I think the thing that. I see the most value in, in this whole government concept is the efficiency that it brings to organizations um, in areas that it's really catching on right now. Um, DTA within Australian government is really uh, kind of wrap their arms around this whole of government approach um, at open text. We're working with them on that as well as within government of Canada. Um, we have a, kind of a whole of government approach with them as well. And what it really seeks to do is, uh, remove some of that overlap and fragmentation that is happening within government and, and allow them to get the most uh, usage out of uh, platform-based technologies without having it through decentralized procurement. So I'll give you an example. Um, there's all these commonalities uh, or, or core um, functions that happen across government. Eight, human capital management is a great example, but um, you, you might look at some of the 
request type processes that happens. And to do that, let's say in HR, you have, um, you have a new employee request or an onboarding request. The same process that facilitates that works in the IT community where they do asset management and service requests and things. But in the past, what you've seen is these two groups are procuring disparate technologies to facilitate that. With this whole of government approach, you're able to kind of look at a, uh, look at a platform or look at uh, uh, an offering and being able to fold that into an entire enterprise. So now you have your IT department, your HR department, your financial department working with the same platform to facilitate these uh, request-based processes. Think of the, the amount of money you're saving. Um, instead of procuring two, three, four different platforms to do the same exact thing, um, and the type of efficiencies you're gaining within an organization, it's really the spirit of what they're seeking to do. Um, and the best way to think about it, it's kind of like a, a BPA for an entire government. Instead of looking at a BPA for uh, the just the U.S. Army or or just the Department of Interior, you're looking at a BPA for the entire entire United States government or the entire government of Canada. Um, that they can then pull from because they've the, the larger office has already done their due diligence on these on these products um, and they've kind of passed that test. Okay, so um, when 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 you outlined this to me, it did uh, it got my juices flowing because whole new thing uh, uh, it involves you know procurement, governmental activities. One of your other favorite topics, you know, customer experience, mm-hmm. and we'll probably touch on that later. But, you know, I, I do what I always do. I Google the topic and who shows up at the top of the list. But, you know, now a recurrent theme for me, Deloitte. Uh, Deloitte has this uh, really great study on on whole government. Um, and you and I were discussing this before. You know, they keep chunking out these things and they show up at the top of Google, not just because, you know, they may or may not be paying for placement, but because it's great information. So they have a like a seven step process for uh, for the deployment of whole of government. And um, if you would, I would really like you to uh, walk us through this. So it starts with uh, to deploy a government or a whole of government approach. Really, how to how to structure uh, successfully a, a multi agency kind of international program, and and what they're basically doing is they're they're helping us understand that their the ecosystem is much more complex. It's not just um, looking at a singular organization with a singular challenge, um, but our, but our ecosystem involves uh, private enter- enterprise, nonprofits, partners. Uh, GSIs, FSIs, et cetera. And in doing this, it, it helps us understand that the type of technologies we need to procure and the way we look to procure them really changes. Um, and I think that's a good first step when you look at the real driving factor around what uh, really drives success within a technology change in an organization. It really starts with laying the foundation um, or creating a, a culture that is accepting of it. It's not just throwing technology at the problem. And I think that's really what they're, they're saying to start with. Yeah, I, I, I misspoke. It's not a, a seven step process. There's uh, seven parts of the, uh, the program and it's really a five step process. But that being said, um, so the, the, the whole thing is, is figuring out what activities can be coordinated among 
federal, state, local, international, and private sector, right? That's correct. And one of the unique things that I've seen internationally is governments are more willing to accept this. And you brought up the the different levels of government. Um, I, I, like I mentioned before, uh, DTA within Australia is accepting this whole government approach. But one of our customers, Government of Qatar, and, and we actually were speaking around CX earlier, they're enveloping um, this entire citizen experience platform um, built by OpenText. But it's it's beyond just their national government. They're taking it to every single level of the government to really drive value holistically. And I think that's something that from a, from a uniformity perspective, um, we're going to see more and more throughout. Now, obviously, the United States is a, is a larger entity than uh, Qatar. But at the same time, I still think the approach in and of itself can certainly scale to meet these needs. Um, and I'm not saying it's, it's going to be one vendor for this entire ecosystem, but I think a strategy that really envelops a, a, a best-in-class uh, solution is, is important. And I, I was just talking to the, the CTO for the city of Toronto, and one of the things that we spoke to is centralized versus decentralized procurement. And if you think of whole of government, part of that feels very centralized, but I think it's only centralized to principles. I think you don't want to control everything. You want to control the principles that organizations are then aligning to. So you can then decentralize the procurement processes. I think that's important is, is really the centralization alignment there. Okay. That's a great place to break. So we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Brian Schittister of OpenText, and we shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with my friend, Brian Chittister. Uh Brian and I swap emails pretty regularly, and I look at his posts, um, and I believe he, he does the same for mine. So we're in touch pretty regularly. And again, you know, thank you for bringing this, the whole uh, of government to my attention, um, because it really is a cool concept. So, um, I mean, if you think about issues that uh, multiple levels of government with geographic proximity, you know, continental U.S., uh, U.S., Mexico, Canada, whatever, if problems they could address in a coordinated fashion, the, the list becomes endless, right? So how do you define a problem area? Well, and, and this, is, this is, I think, one of the larger challenges of adopting a whole of government approach is you have to look for patterns um, to create this, this kind of programmatic approach. Um, and in, in finding these patterns, that's where you find the challenges and in, in the, the problems um, in which you need to scale. Um, so that, that kind of goes back to what I was saying before. It's finding those common, um, find those common common processes across organization, um, and I think that's a great place to start. Once you define some of those, I think it becomes easier then to figure out what some of the what some of the larger solutions um, that are out there could be. And it, it's one of the reasons why I think the government, um, even though I wouldn't say that formally the U.S. government is adopting a whole-of-government approach, at least even at the federal level. But I think there, there's absolutely 
um, some vendor consolidation happening. And I think what they're doing is is seeking to get the the analogous benefits of a whole of government approach, which is that uh, coordination um, and the removal of the overlap and fragmentation of solutions. So I think we're already seeing it, um, albeit in, in a little bit less formal of a state. But I think CIOs are starting to realize that they can uh, kind of, I'll say, shift um, where their budget sits by just um, removing some of that that common overlap. Okay. So you, you referenced earlier that uh, you and your company are working with, with other governments outside the U.S. on whole-of-government programs. How, how do you define uh, their problem areas? I mean, do you just pick up the phone, call somebody and say, hey, um, can we have a chat? I think I have something for you or what? No, that, that, I think that's a really good question. Uh, so governments are really good about screaming from the rooftops what some of their challenges are. Um, you look at uh, Government of Canada is a great example. They put out an entire paper around where they're looking to get to. Um, it's not they're just raising their hand and saying, hey, we're really terrible here and here. Somebody come help us. It's we have a vision. We want to get to uh, this place by 2030. And, and in doing that, you can certainly reverse engineer and understand where your organization or whoever's listening, what, where your organization can help these global governments. Um, one out there right now that, uh, that I'm, I'm currently working on is uh, Saudi Arabia, Vision 2030. Um, they have a really, uh, a really aggressive uh, vision on where they want to get to. Um, and I can tell you unequivocally, they have the budget uh, to align <laughs> to it. So it's, uh, it's, it's certainly one for anybody who's out there. I, I would take a look at it. But um, the, the, I, I think at that point, um, you just need to be smart about what the, what the offering is. I think what governments are starting to realize too, because for any marketing person out there, I think this is always interesting. For a long time, one of the most common questions or requests I would get from a salesperson is, hey, can I federalize this? Or can I, can I take what, what the company made and can I turn this into something that, that speaks in government terms? And generally, my answer is, sure, we can do that. And some of the things that they speak to, um, it, some of the words they want to remove is competition. It, governments aren't competing. That's, that, it's not a competition. Well, there's a little pushback now because I can tell you that I'm working with a lot of governments all over the world, and what I am hearing almost almost every single time is we want to be in the UN's top 10 of e-government index. They are absolutely competing. They want to be seen as digital leaders um, around the world that they want to be seen as a best in class government. Um, so I think when you're looking at that competition is definitely part of what drives, uh, government leaders. I mean, look within the federal, uh, federal government, Suzette Kent put out the list of, of top government agencies and bottom government agencies. And I can tell you if I'm the CIO of a bottom government agency, I want to get out of there and I want to compete and I want to get to the top. And, and that's something that is certainly on their mind. And I wouldn't disregard that aspect of their role or that motivation um, of a, a government CIO, CTO, et cetera. 
Okay. So now, now that we've identified the problem, uh, talk about you know how, how do you, how do the players shake out? Who who emerges as a leader here? And is it a one solution thing? We we had talked before, and you said it's kind of an RFI situation, but. Yeah, so it's it, it's not always a one solution piece, and a government's not going to say, "Here's this one company that does everything. We're only going to do business with them." Um, but what it really does is it centralizes the process. Uh, so very similar to how uh, the GSA FedRAMP PIO kind of centralizes um, how they go about uh, approvals. Um, it, it's kind of like that, where you have in in Canada. Uh, there's a there's a treasury board secretary that we work with that does a lot of the um, a, a, a lot of the scrutiny around what what is part of this whole of government type of ELA uh, and what isn't. So by centralizing that, you're able to um, again align to the core principles, align to the vision of that government, but then also find uh, a handful of leaders in that space that then can bring best of breed technologies to these to these organizations. And I think not only best of breed, but when you look at leaders, uh, one of the things that I think shows um, the ability to future-proof and drive a government forward is interoperability. And the governments want to be able to centralize that, centralize to that vision. Their, their platforms and solutions need to be completely interoperable so, so they can have not just a whole-of-government procurement approach, but find success from a whole-of-government strategy. And that's ultimately what they're they're seeking to do, especially especially now that we're talking about um, moving towards citizen experience and how can we get more out of data, et cetera. Uh, that's all part of of how they want to centralize to these core principles. Okay, we we haven't talked at all about the territoriality of of governments, you know, the the fiefdom effect. But um, have you run across that in your your work previously? Do people resist this at all, predicated on they think they are going to play a lesser role going forward? Well, I I think whenever you hear vendor consolidation, there's always a part of you that is concerned when you look at some of your, your current customer base. But, and, and not that I want to make this a commercial for open text, but I see it as opportunity. We play in so many different markets and, and not just us. There's a lot of, there's a lot of your listeners out there that are working for companies that play in a lot of different markets. Um, and, and in that can support the public sector in infinite ways. So I think instead of looking at a whole of government or even just a vendor consolidation strategy as a threat or, or something to be concerned about, I think flip it on its head and, and look at it as, a, as an opportunity um, because I know that's how I look at it. Okay. Um, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Uh, we're going to continue with this when, uh, when we return in just a moment. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Brian Chittister. We're talking about whole of government approach to uh, deal with a variety of issues. And um, we're, we're, we're operating on Brian's firsthand knowledge of this. So let's, let's talk about, you know, if we're talking about multiple levels of government, how do you get the funding going? Hey, careful. You might have just lost a lot of listeners telling them that you're operating off my knowledge. 
<laughs> um, I trade off all my guests now. <laughs> uh, no, and, and I think so. Ensuring the funding, and I think this what what this does is it really speaks to one of the one of the really large motivations for adopting an approach like this is to uh, not only save money um, to be able to to reallocate it into other areas, but uh, but, but also unify that funding and, and make sure that it's available for different challenges that might pop up. I think COVID is a great example. And when you look at a whole of government approach, um, when adopted properly, you have the right funding in place to be able to fill in some of the gaps that some of these organizations had. Um, remote work is a, is a great example. Um, I'm still meeting with customers in the United States on teleconference. And, and that's something that this type of strategy could help. Um, and you, you and I talked about it before. And just as an analogy, when I look at how we could roll this out, it would be very similar to what GSA did with the, the, the continuous diagnostics and mitigation program of a few years back where they, they really centralized the funding to ensure that there was digital equity across organizations. Um, in, in, the, in the respect to that program, it was, it was security posture, security equity. But um, in this regard, we're looking at digital equity across organizations. And when you have the gaps that were, were shown coming out of the pandemic, a program like this could go a long way to really support organizations up and down the chain. Um, so uh, fr- from that, from that regard, it's, it's really important and, uh, and a cost savings as well. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the distribution of the vaccine right now, a program like this could go a heck of a long way to getting that hundred million doses out that, that, uh, president uh, Biden wants to, uh, you know, get in the arms of citizens. Yo, absolutely. I think you're you're putting the technology in the place to be able to facilitate a lot of this stuff. And um, at every level, uh, whether it's national, local, state, local, um, you're you're providing the 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 gap remediation for them. And, and you're absolutely right. Um, so that's a really good real world example right now where where you'd see value. Yeah, I mean, and and you know, please somebody listen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the senior category and I haven't had a shot yet. So, oh, I, 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 I'm almost hesitant to tell you. Then I got, I got my vaccine yesterday. Yeah, I guess I have to leave my house to get it, but you know. Um, so, um, what's, what's the the final part? I, I want to point out again: we're, we're we're operating not simply from from Brian's knowledge here, but from a paper that uh, was a study that was put out by Deloitte. And ever since Dan Helfrich has assumed the chairmanship at Deloitte, they've really taken on a strong thought leadership role in uh, in, in the international arena of, of GovCon. And, and it's pretty cool stuff that they're generating. So uh, kudos there. But the last part of the, uh, of the study that we're looking at is the coordination of efforts with partners. So how do you uh, how do you see that? So, and, I mean, this kind of speaks to it, it. Really brings it full circle. Is that governments? I mean, private sector um, too, but governments as well are working in a very different ecosystem. And because of that, I think the the different technologies that you need to bring to bear to support that ecosystem um, sometimes are, are are either not available or funding's not available, 
or just the awareness around the technology isn't there. So I think when you can, when you can remediate those three challenges and allow some of the innovations that are happening to support this partner ecosystem um, to be out there, uh, I think you're, you're really going to drive true change within government. You have so many different barriers and, and most of the time, rightfully so, uh, especially when you're looking at this, uh, the coming out of the, the solar winds hack and everything, we're still learning on a, a minute by minute basis. There's a lot of security issues around data. There's a lot of, um, different inhibitors that, that prevent some of these, um, fast moving, innovative, emerging technologies to be brought into the government. But when you can at least centralize some of the, the vetting and allow, uh, for, for, for that to take place, I think you're going to see that to actually be a large driver in new and emerging technologies moving forward. Um, and going back to what you mentioned on the partner ecosystem, I think it'll, it'll absolutely show value there and support it. Okay. So wrap, wrap up the, uh, we got a couple other things we are, we are going to talk about, but wrap up the, uh, the whole of government thing for our listeners here. Um, it, to me, I, Best thing I can say is it's a great strategy, in my opinion. And, and I'm not just saying that because Open Text does play in so many different vertical areas of public sector. But um, I think it's going to be a way to take some of the onus off of um, the people doing the vetting. Uh, and it's going to provide more innovation across, uh, across government, saving them money at the exact same time. Like I said, that overlap, that fragmentation of technologies um, is, is something that we're seeing that's pretty pervasive because... Uh, it's, it's been a little bit of the wild, wild west when it comes to procurement and things have been completely decentralized. Um, and I think this is a good way to, to kind of pull that back and be a lot more strategic. Um, and I think with the, the Biden administration coming in, I I think it's something that they're absolutely going to look at. Um, I, I know, I think outside of, of the COVID, uh, vaccine and getting this, getting this, uh, situation under wraps, I think, government technology, government IT is going to be perhaps second um, on the priority list for Biden as he moves in. And um, I think that's exciting to see what, what can, what can happen. Cause over this past year, I think we've seen what government really can do um, when, when there's draconian motivations. And um, I think that's excited a lot of people. I, I, I think you're right. So Again, as I intimated, we have a couple other things, uh, one that is especially near and dear to you, and that's this whole concept of the citizen experience. So um, tell people what it is and why it's important. I think it's important for a number of reasons. One, and this is going to be the most obvious, when COVID hit and everyone went into lockdown, I think the the number of people that were impacted by the government's lack of uh, kind of digital transformation around the, these experience portals or just experiences in general really left a lot of people suffering. I mean, look no further than the unemployment websites that went down when they when they lost when they couldn't ingest the number of um, uh, requisitions that went in. I think that's just one piece of this, uh, and I, I think you're going to see that that citizens are really demanding an omni-channel um, uh, experience with their governments the same way that they do with any other private sector entity they work with. Um, and government understands that. And, and they're slowly, but still moving towards it. Um, 
one of the things that I think has fascinated me the most, though, is where you're seeing most of the innovation happening within the, these digital experience portals, let's just call them that, is really at the smaller city levels. Um, some, some town in the middle of the United States is probably uh, driving really strong smart city technology, digital experience technology, um, because they don't have to scale it out as much, obviously, as like a city of New York or, or London. But you're seeing a lot of innovation there. And, and that's, that's been something that people have looked at and pointed to as, as best in class. And the other element to this is when you think of citizen experience, I think some people stop right with the portal or the website or the, the application on your phone that you engage with. But it's really a completely holistic plane you want to look across all the way into employee experience, shifting from low value to high value work, which I, I know is a big piece of the presidential management agenda. How can I allow my employees to, to open up more bandwidth, to be uh, more strategic, to drive a higher value uh, effort for the citizens? I think that's an important aspect of it too. Um, so, so it's not just the UX, it's, it's also the, the kind of taking a look at the future of work within government and how can that really have a direct impact on the citizen. I think all of that's important. Yeah. And, and just to give a really basic example, but it impacts people, at least when we're able to drive more. Um, I remember reading in American city and county magazine, God, maybe 20 years ago, uh, towns coordinating traffic lights because prior to that, you know, you you drive a block and have to stop again, and they just sequence the lights in a way, obviously automatically, uh, that allowed for a much healthier traffic flow and less aggravation amongst those behind the wheels of the car. So mundane, but very effective. Yeah, I mean, it sounds mundane, but to me, it's really cool because, I mean, I, I don't, I don't need to dig back into the the topic we were just talking about or on whole of government. But as as we go on and we go down different rabbit holes, I think what you find is the the pieces of government um, that are really important right now are all winter, interwoven because you're talking about something that now twenty years on is is bringing data around the traffic congestion problem. Um, to to smart cities or connected communities out there, and with that, now we're talking about data and analytics, and we're talking about um, how can we provide real time insights uh, around some of the data coming, and how do we make that then readily available to the to the government enterprise um, to to connect cities, to connect states, to provide them those insights so they know what those best practices are. That that all goes to that whole of government approach, but um, at the local level. I think you're seeing some really cool things happening uh, around smart cities, especially with the evolution of 5G and, and within six, seven years, 6G rolling out. I think that the opportunities are, are massive. It's going to be really cool to see. Cool. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll return to wrap up with Brian on yet another topic right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Brian Chittister. Uh, I, I want to give a little background here. I started following Brian, and, and I connected with him back when he worked at the IMIX Group. And I found him there because his posts on the uh, Government Sales Insider blog were always uh, 
things that added to my knowledge base. So, um, so now we're continuing next number of years later. Um, he's still feeding me great stuff. So thanks, Brian. I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that. And a per- perfect way to include uh, our good buddy, Alan Rubin. Again, I think every time we yes. talk, Alan comes up and, and rightfully so uh, really good guy. Um, but he's the one that introduced us um, going into uh, or when I was at a group. So no, I'm, I'm glad he did. I've learned probably 10 times more from you than you've learned from me. And I, I, I thank you for that. Well, yeah, it's a collaborative universe, dude. <laughs> um, and let, let's, let's do our part to keep it that way. Um, so the whole, the, from the last 10 plus months, many of us, I've been working from home for 36 years. Most people haven't. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry if you haven't acclimated yet, but it's a fact of life. So um, how has work from home impacted people that you work with? Because I know that you're, you're largely uh, work from home person as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like we should spend an entire episode with you just telling us what work from home has been looked like over 36 years. Nap time. I think, I, I think that, I think that could be an episode in and of itself. Um, no. So, so as I mentioned to you before, I'm, I, I was working remote long before COVID hit. Um, I mean, not 36 years, but substantial enough that, uh, I was absolutely acclimated. Um, whether it's a kind of physical acclimation, uh, mental acclimation, as, as people now that are doing it probably understand, you, you need to do both. Um, the, the biggest change for me was that, at least environmentally, is, is having people around me in my house, um, my wife and two kids. So um, I think that's the biggest change. But from a government perspective, uh, technology, I, I will say this, I am really impressed with the way um, governments were able to pivot, especially at the federal level. Um, I spoke to Suzette Kent earlier on this um, on my podcast, and I I absolutely agree that. Oh, tell tell people what your podcast is, please. Oh yeah, so if you haven't if you haven't listened, uh, the Government Huddle podcast, you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google, wherever, probably wherever you can listen to Mark's podcast, you can probably listen to mine. Um, but one of the things Suzette told me, or we had spoken about, was the government had laid the groundwork to be successful in remote work long before COVID hit, which allowed for this pivot to happen. And not every single organization was the same, but I still think the access to technology was there um, to be able to facilitate that, which is why there wasn't um, as much of a rumbling uh, at the federal level. State and local levels are a little bit different. Um, We still saw people needing to push out laptops to their their employees uh, based on uh, th- their infrastructure challenges, um, and it really shed a light on the the digital equity um, happening at every single government. Uh, one of the examples I use is imagine being imagine being an employee of the city of New York, and I'm I'm guessing the the resources that you have there are analogous to uh, a mid to large size federal organization. But then imagine you're in some small locality in in the middle of Kansas somewhere you're probably not getting the same access to resources as you are uh, in New York city. So the, the digital equity um, that, that, that brings to bear. And one of the things that technology is so good at, in my opinion, is bridging gaps. So I, I think that's something that we've seen over the past 10, 11 months um, is technology being brought in to fill in those gaps. And then 
at the same time, and I know we mentioned it earlier, not just throwing technology into it, but reassessing what those processes are. If, if all these paper-based processes are being digitized, you can't just overlay technology on top of that. So how can we change the process to support what the new needs are? Um, and all of that has come into play and been part of the conversation. Um, and, and frankly, I, I think private sector uh, it was really far ahead of the public sector all over the world when it, when it came to, let's just say, digital transformation. The, let's just use that overused buzz term. But I think government has caught up substantially. Um, they're, they're not equal. Uh, I mean, absolutely unequivocally not equal, but I think they've, they've absolutely bridged a lot of the gap that we had seen before. Well, part, part of the gaps were the resistance by older managers to let people work where they could not be physically or eyeball supervised. Mm -hmm. You know, if I can't see you, do I trust you? And, uh, I mentioned this in the break, I've been following telework since uh, probably about 1990 when there were telework centers around the D.C. area that you could drive to so you didn't have to drive into D.C. if you were a Fed. You simply booked a spot, you went there, you did your work, you went home. During, from, from that period forward, I've seen several studies, all of which, every single one of which has emphasized that productivity increases when people are allowed to telework. No, I, I absolutely feel more productive. I mean, my, my commute is all of 15 seconds. I walk out of my bedroom downstairs into my office and I'm there. So it's, I, I'm saving hours a day that I can dedicate back to work, um, which for me, when I'm, when I'm keeping different uh, time zone schedules, so I'm meeting with people either late at night or early in the morning, I don't need to be in the office for that. And, and that saves me a lot of time. It's also time back with my family, which which I certainly appreciate going back to what you said about telework centers. Um, as we're looking at what maybe work from home or work from anywhere could look like over the next few years, I think that type of setup could, could come back because we're seeing, uh, we're seeing the consolidation of real estate too in, in corporate America. Um, I, I think everybody's seen the narrative around companies, uh, jumping ship from Silicon Valley and some of them moving to, to Austin and, um, some of them just downsizing their headquarters and, and some of the, the workers leaving. Um, I think people in this new work from anywhere environment, I think a lot of people are going to work from home, but there's still people that need to be outside of the house to do that. And I think these type of centers could be a way to do that. I know a, a gym down the street from me um, has, has cubicle areas that you can actually rent out to be able to go to the gym, um, work, then go work out and then, and then go home. So I think those type of, those type of setups, those hybrid approaches uh, could be what we see in this new normal. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be difficult to um, eliminate uh, part of what government needs to do because, you know, I I love being on air with you. There are several of my guests where, you know, the ideas just flow. But I know that when we get together physically, there's more of a, a, a palpable air about the intellectual exchange and ideas just seem to create. So, Part of that has to stay part of our culture. The Pareto Prince, yeah, the Pareto approach won't work. Yeah, and and I think I think what you're what you're kind of speaking to, if I can put it into words, is it's it's that isolation effect where when you're at home, 
your you have so many different things that can steal your attention away whether <laughs> well i mean right now it yes be, it, it could be my kid running into my office or it could be uh, a package being delivered or something that disrupts what i'm doing enough to kind of throw me off and uh when you are in a situation where you are isolated whether it's a conference or you're in your office closing the door in, in uh at work um, I think you you have that level of isolation that can help you focus. I think the key is figuring out what that looks like now for you and for everybody. It's different. Um, I think ultimately, uh, and and like you, I've been doing a lot of reading on this, and I think the 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 hybrid approach that I'm seeing that that makes the most sense is not necessarily um, full. Some people are in the office, some people are not, but I think the work week becomes hybrid where it's maybe three days in the office, two days outside of the office or vice versa, depending on what it looks like and kind of flipping people and, um, and seeing what that looks like. But um, ultimately, it's going to be different. I think unequivocally, it's going to be different. It'll just be a matter of, uh, of where it falls. When, when COVID hit, uh, one of the things that I would, that I would tell customers if, or at events that I was presenting on is um, I'm not a COVID expert. I, I can't tell you, even before COVID hit, I couldn't tell you exactly what the next five years, 10 years looked like for certain. And I certainly can't do it now. But what I can tell you is what I'm seeing and, and what I think makes the most sense. And that's kind of, to me, as you look at the, at the, the next normal, that, that to me is, is it's definitely not going to be the same. And I, I think to me that that hybrid approach makes the most sense. Cool. Ryan, always a pleasure, man. Ditto, man. I appreciate it. I, I, I always like being on the show, so um, I'm glad I could be on. You, you, you will be back. I think we have a few more topics that we touched on that need deeper dives. So uh, this is not my day job. I do advise companies uh, on government contractors anyway, on all aspects of marketing to the government, but I specialize in social selling, content marketing, and building a subject matter expert platform for your company. If those ideas resonate, drop me a line. Let's set a time to talk. You can reach me through LinkedIn or markamtower at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.